Last week, we asked Health Rosetta co-founder Sean Shanson about what top advisors are doing to help their clients in today's marketplace. On this episode, in part two of our conversation, we asked Sean to look deep into his crystal ball to let us know what the future may hold for our industry and the tools and techniques we'll need to know about. So, is it happiness heading your way, or will we continue to have a fragmented, intense, and confusing environment? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. On part two of our interview with Sean Shanson, who's the co-founder at Health Rosetta, we're going to be talking today about the future and what things look like going forward. And some of the things that we're going to chat about may surprise the bejabbers out of you because they're things that even a year ago you might not have thought were important. But welcome back, Sean. Thanks, David. Happy to be back. So off air, we were talking about some of the things that are that are maybe happening out in the future tense, I guess. And one of the things that we were talking about was kind of a back to the future thing. We were talking a little bit about Kaiser and some employers who are doing some things that are kind of Kaiser-like. Can you give us some input on these ideas about hospitals and how care is going to be intersected? Yeah. So we can start with the things that are the wildest that we're seeing in the market, which is we're seeing employers do things all the way up to saying, Let's, why don't we just start a hospital um, in, my, in our backyards? And they're talking to their friends and, and their other empl- uh, the CEOs of mid-market companies. And this isn't just big employers. This is like a number of mid-market employers and their family offices and their friends saying, well, we can pull together the capital and we can pull together the lives. And we are influential in our communities. We can attract the doctors. We can do everything. Why don't we just build a hospital or buy one or take it over or stepping down from that, like surgery centers or whatever, going beyond just like on-site clinics and near-site clinics and things like that. But saying, well, we're so frustrated with the way things have been going for so long. And it's been such a fight that forget it, we're done. We're just going to start over, burn it to the ground, start over, build it all up, attract the people, make it better for the value creators, and then take a bunch of the opportunity to build something that works for our communities. And, um, and so that's like, those are those extreme examples of like, you know, hospitals. It's not like every employer is out there thinking about this, but we know some ones that are actually working on it, that are putting together the plans, that are raising the capital, that are getting commitments, that are building the financial models, things like that. Like they're beyond hypotheticals. Like, well, it, it's not unprecedented though, right? I mean, no. you, there are unions who have built hospitals and hospital systems in point of fact. Exactly. But having that go to the mid market is the thing that we think is unique and and doing it from a community out perspective and saying, well, we're in a a tertiary city um, or a secondary city, and we're going to just build what works for our community, I think is the variant on it that is unique because the middle market, 50 to 5,000 employees is roughly where 90 million people get their health care access from. 
And so it's one thing for a one-off union to do it. It's another thing for a group of people in a geography to do it that represent manufacturers and service providers and this, that, and the other that others can then look at and say, wait a second, we're just like that. We could do that. It's uh, the unions that have done it, like kudos to them because that is a Herculean effort and lift across so many vectors for a union to do it in, because they don't control as much of the means of, of capital and, and influence and things across as many vectors within a community um, as a group of employers do generally, like not always, but seeing it being done by the company side, we think is, it's much more easily looked at as something I could do as opposed to, oh, that's just that fringe thing that they did it good for them, but that wouldn't work for us. But when they see someone that goes to their annual trade conference, do it, that's when things start getting more real. So one of the things that I think about when we talk about building new hospitals is this increasingly difficult problem that, that Congress, for lack of a better word, uh, has, or the legislatures, I guess, have put in, in, in front of these people, and that's getting a certificate of need. Mm-hmm. And an awful lot of times, the granting of those certificates of needs, let's not be naive, are controlled more or less by the lobbyists for the big hospital systems. How much momentum would a community group have to get together to bullnose over one of those things to, to actually get a certificate of need. And there's the rub. I mean, none, none of the projects we know are past certificate of need issues yet. And we, I highlight that as something that's going on, not so much to highlight that that's what's going to definitively happen, but to highlight that the need and the pain is so strong among the buyers of healthcare services in the commercial market that they're willing to even seriously consider going down that path and dedicate resources to figuring out if and how they can do it. In some of these cases, I think what will happen is they'll then partner up with their local existing providers and and come up with something that works and they don't end up building a hospital Um, or they'll buy an existing hospital. Um, And like like we've heard a couple stories of people being afraid that a big national hospital player is going to buy up their local community hospital and it's going to kind of mess things up um, from a cost perspective. And so they've thought that's been the prompt of it. So whether they actually end up building a new hospital or not is almost beside the issue, uh, which is it's for an employer to step up and say, well, I have 1,500 employees. And I have a bunch of other employees and, and my buddy has 200 and so-and-so has this and so-and-so has that. Let's just get together and do it and then actually go and coordinate and spend your time doing that when it's a complete distraction to your business is the part that's the most signaling because of certificate of need issues, because of overcapacity of clinical, I mean, varies by geography, but overcapacity of clinical build out in a lot of geographies. Um, we have plenty of real estate, as it were. Whether they actually end up doing it or not is a, is a whole other story. Um, I know some geographies are pretty close and they, they, they'll have fewer certificate of need issues when they finally get to it, but they've already done the analysis. But you're right, the, there are a lot of challenges to it and they may have to face it, but the fact that they're willing to fight those fights is indicative. And also remember like the lobbying side of things is one thing, but there's also the local political influence, local family owned independent companies are enormously influential in their geographies in lots and lots of ways. They went to the right schools. They live in the right neighborhoods. They have the right accents. And so when they start influencing politics in their States and in their regions, they have a lot of sway. They're the donors. They're the ones that do the get out to vote. They're the ones that do all these things on the ground. And if you lose your grassroots support, as a politician, because it's perceived by your constituents, your powerful constituents, that you're kowtowing to special interests, then 
you've got you're stuck between a rock and a hard spot. And I'm not nearly smart enough to predict how that will play out. But those are the dynamics that we see emerging as we think through how these scenarios play out. And now a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion. Do you think that we'll see a role for advisors as kind of a, a quarterback or a coordinator if those efforts start moving forward? Will that be something advisors will dip their toe into? I mean, advisors and health resident are doing it now. So yes, um, in some cases, they're the catalyst for it. And it's usually them partnering up with employers and, prov- and doctors in, in a lot of cases as well. Because we always, on the provider side, we like to group those all together. But the doctors and nurses are suffering a lot too. Like they're in record level burnout, what are perceived by nurses and others as unsafe conditions, things like that. That's a, just going to a Facebook group of a, of a bunch of nurses and you'll understand that the pain is very real on the provider side, the individual level. And at the end of the day, everything else beyond them is just enabling infrastructure. There's just organizing companies and locations and things like that. But they're the ones that actually create the value and put their lives on the line and do all these things. And the moment that something better comes along, they're ready to jump. I mean, sure, sure. Well, let's skip ahead to one of the big cost drivers, and that's pharma. What do you see in, in terms of interactions and coming down the pike in, in ways that employers and their advisors might be able to kind of take that head on? So I like to start with utopia, not utopia, but sci- science fiction and move back to reality. Um, <laughs> so okay. science fiction is that the entire model by which we price and distribute and have supply chain for drugs, we all know is flawed in many, many ways. And it's complex, it's highly regulated, it's priced in weird ways, and and everyone knows all the details. I'm not gonna get into that, but that heavy weight can only fight economic gravity for so long. And so we step back and say, okay, if that's the utopia, that's worth, or not utopia, that's the like science fiction of like, fix that. Like, fix that. I'm not going to predict exactly how it's going to happen. What I will say is that if you break it down into what's going to pipe is supply chain, not just optimizing, like, oh, we've got transparent pass-through PBMs. That's, that's well and good, but that's, like, first base. We're seeing projects starting to emerge by some heavy hitters around, let's just replace the existing supply chain with a completely tech-enabled direct from the pharmacy pharmaceutical manufacturers like at the, on the extreme end, or let's just turn ourselves into a tiny margin. We don't play any of the games. We pass through everything. We take a tiny, tiny margin or a tiny, tiny amount on everyone. And we're totally tech enabled infrastructure from the ground up. So that's a supply chain issue, which is 
replace the existing supply chain or decapitalize it so much through technology and through very, very specific types of business models that you're borrowing from the tech community related to recurring revenue that create the models for doing this that require far fewer people, far fewer manual work emerging. Uh, so that's supply chain stuff. And there's, that takes a thousand different forms like Mac pricing for generics and then carving that all out into its own thing. And even in some cases, pushing it through primary care and just taking the margin out of it entirely and just being 100% pass through. It's direct sourcing of drugs for multi-source, for places that multi-source. So that's, that's one thing. It's the uh, supply chain issue. The second, I would say, is the drugs have started splitting between the medical and the pharmacy side. And so how do you better integrate the management of those things? And so that starts getting into the historical anomaly of why pharmacy plans and medical plans are distinct and separate plans run by different people. When most of your spend, if you add up all your drug in um, some plans, a lot of plans may actually be coming on the drug side from the medical plan. And so how do you clinically and financially integrate drugs, no matter what I'm using air quotes, plan do they sit under now? Um, so I'd say that's the second theme that we're seeing emerge. And that's that. And then the third thing we're seeing is just the value-based pricing of things, of some of the really scary drugs coming down the pipe have really good efficacy data. Like they work, they do what they purport to do. And so that gets into societal issues of how much do we want to compensate the things that they do? I mean, there's one thing to have an, a, an oncology drug that has that got through FDA clearance on synthetic endpoints that show no distinct extension of life. You have a 10% chance of living two weeks longer and it's going to be miserable for you. That's one thing. That's one thing to kind of carve out with your formulary, through patient interactions, things like that. But then there's another issue, which is, what do you do for these things that are coming that are terrifying everyone from a cost perspective, but actually work? And so what we're starting to see, and this is really early, is pharmaceutical companies and financial managers and capital markets and, and others starting to think through, well, how do you securitize and amortize the cost of this? Because we start getting into the problems with an employer-based plan is maybe the drug should cost a million dollars. If it works, because the cost of that, of keeping that, of that if, because it's curative for a disease that would cost two and a half million dollars to maintain the cost of care for that member. So how do you start carving that out? So it's like the next generation of carve outs, like we've done with transplants and, and renal and things like that is these kind of specialty carve outs that are financed in a way that amortize the cost of the total cost of care for the patient over no matter where they sit. And so it's that portability of that benefit. So I'd say those are the three things. One is the supply chain and completely rethinking that, not just like tiny optimization of it. And the second thing is the integration between the drugs have sort of spread to both medical and clinical side. And, and how do you kind of wrap that all together so you can effectively manage it from a clinical and financial integration perspective? And then the third is for these things that are coming that actually work, that are potentially curative, how do you finance them in a way that makes up for the some of the inherent flaws of our current healthcare system. This all kind of begs a bigger question, doesn't it? Which is, what does the future of risk management look like in the first place? Different. Let's just say that. <laughs> so you. a little bit of my background, I was a tech entrepreneur, sold the company, went back to law school, or went back to school, was a lawyer, went back to law school, practiced securities law, working for um, complex securities law cases and transactions and things, um, because that's the obvious thing you do after a tech startup is go to law school. But the I worked on a case that was 
the core issues were really long tail reinsurance, complex reinsurance issues like environmental cleanup, where you pay millions into these, into your premiums for years and years and years. And then 25 years later, you have to pay $250 million into a super fund. And then you find out your insurer wasn't reserving enough money. And, and so it's this crazy long tail reinsurance issues. And because that insurer was insuring you and all of the other people in your industry, and you each have to pay $250 million into it. And all of a sudden it's a $20 billion super fund or whatever the numbers are. And so it's this really complex issue of reinsurance. So that that's informed, at least my personal thinking is because this was a $30 billion lawsuit that we were the lead trial counsel on. We were paid to be experts in the underlying issues, not just be the legal experts. And so I got to know a freakishly weird amount about reinsurance um, without ever having been officially in the industry. It always has struck me that the we all know that small number of people with a relatively small number of, of types of care result in all of the cost in healthcare, a vast, vast majority of healthcare. That's Pareto distribution, 80-20 rule, whatever you want to call it. So yet our yet stop loss as a product doesn't, at the individual employer level, typically does not account for that high occurrence variability of these issues and low, low frequency on a per member basis. And so stepping back from any of the jargon and just looking at the concept of risk, the way that we buy and the products that we buy for stop loss today do not, and the way that we end up getting as an employer, you end up getting increases or lasers or something in future years, if anything, one of these rare things happens or not, if when they happen is very hard to predict when it's going to happen to who. So the products of stop loss are, are fundamentally flawed in a certain number of ways that we think the, the future of risk management is making up for that problem using technology, using plan structures that are built to avoid these issues in the first place, or at least have not just one or two vendors or solutions, but have a full bullpen of solutions to tackle all the moving pieces within it. Um, they have primary care in them to help navigate through and prevent those, minimize those things from before they're happening. And then the, almost more importantly than that, so that's the first point is we know that the, the, the dynamics of risk at a foundational level of healthcare spend do not match with the products that we buy to mitigate against that risk. And I think everyone knows that on various levels. So we see that changing. We're already starting to see that. You're seeing technology-enabled things. Um, you're seeing data platforms, you're seeing captives trying to do this well, you're seeing all sorts of things that to tackle this issue, um, which is to normalize risk and, and make the product and the pricing of the risk meet the fit the, the dynamics of when and how the risk is manifests itself. And then the second issue is then, how do you make it sticky? And this is something that's a really compelling area to us because one of our advisors has a lot of experience in complex systems change related to microcredit in India. And he has a completely different view on risk with the things that they've done than others. And it's sort of blew, blown our mind as we've gotten to know him over the last three or four years. And that basic idea is that from a paying for risk, having larger and larger risk pools is good. From a mitigating risk and managing the risk, larger and larger pools are bad, which is kind of a catch-22. So how do you tackle that? And so what we see is the relocalization of risk. And the analogy I'll use is the Green Bay Packers. The Green Bay Packers, if you're not aware, they're owned by their community. 
They're owned by many, many, many different people. And each of those people, that is a family asset that is part of their identity, that they have season tickets, they own shares in it, in the Green Bay Packers. And there is no way on earth that they're ever going to sell that. They will sell their houses. They will mortgage their houses. They will do whatever they can to not do it because it is such a deep part of their community and identity to be an owner of the Green Bay Packers that they'll do anything they can to keep at it. And I'm not an expert in this, but people that are more experts than me have told me that that's one of the primary reasons that they're able to have a competitive team in a market that you would not expect to have an NFL team in today's environment be successful at all. I mean, I'm, I live in Los Angeles and we can't even keep our NFL teams around because no one cares nearly enough. We're in an upcycle, but that'll change because it always does here. But the Green Bay Packers are like that. So if you look at risk like that, the second issue of how do you manage the risk? Who owns the risk is it comes down to skin in the game. And when you have community owning the skin in the game, the people that can that are most impacted by going wrong and the people that can most manage and can keep it going right, that opens up an entirely new world. So the whole idea of value-based purchasing and contracting and risk and all these things and stop loss, it all sort of sort of merges into like one thing with a series of plans, a series of people that all work together, doctors, advisors, plan sponsors, members, where you can divvy up the risk. And when you have the technology and you have the products that better map then price that those that risk to it, you can then divvy up that risk to the people that are most able to manage it and most incentivized to manage it well. And so maybe that's a local family office that's underwriting the community risk of their entire, of not their entire city, but they put up $50 million or something like that because they're a $2 billion family office that has, is, a, is a pillar of their community. Or you have a, a local employer or you have a local government, uh, I've, we've seen some public sector entities starting to like look at this idea of community-based risk management. So just like the hospitals, it becomes a local issue. Yeah, and the hospitals could be as well. Like, it, I mean, it's really like who's willing to come to the table. And, and as soon as you solve the productization of the risk and the pricing of the risk, and you have the technology to, to oversee it and price it appropriately, which is emerging, and we're already seeing that, we use some of it ourselves, then all it is is just a, it's a slicing it up issue. Sure. And, and, and that's far easier than the other problem. <laughs> so that's where we see the future of risk going. That's true. That's true. And and that's unfortunately all the time we have for today. But Sean Chance and co-founder at Health Rosetta. Sean, we hope you'll come back again and share some of your expertise. It's been a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you, David. I really enjoyed being on the podcast. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. 